Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ross. Last week, we covered the first 127 pages of Detective Gary LeClaire's trial testimony. As promised, today I'm going to continue on with the conclusion of his transcript, but that's not all we're going to do today. The reason that my methodology is to go through only one element of the case at a time, in painstaking detail, is because that requires us to focus, and often leads to us finding things that have been missed in the past, and gives us a much clearer understanding of what actually happened. That's our goal today, to fully understand the relationship between the wheelbarrow track and the triple homicide. I'm going to break down the rest of LeClaire's testimony and Deputy Jerry Osterloh's testimony and then take a look at Osterloh's report and the reports from the other deputies who were out on the scene that night and morning. All of this information relates to the turn of phrase that LeClaire wrote on his hand-drawn map in respect to the place where he says he found the business card. This is Season 12, Episode 41, The End of the Rainbow. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. 100th cappuccino by eight, 200th customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our stay connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30 second 4G activation or one off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. We're going to pick up today right where we left off last week. We're in the middle of Jeff Moore's cross-examination of LeClaire. We ended the last episode with LeClaire explaining that the area of disturbance was actually just a hole. We saw in the pictures that there are cut roots protruding out of the ground on the edge of the hole, and LeClaire shared that he actually dug down about two feet into it. He noted that the soil was soft and loose, and his determination was that something had been dug out of the hole and then it was filled back in. 
And to further refresh your memory, LeClaire was crystal clear about the fact that there were no wheelbarrow tracks or footprints after Placard E. He was simply looking around in an open area, 20 yards north of the origination point, when he found the hole in the business card. There was absolutely nothing, no human activity connecting the hole and the business card to the point of origin. In the following few pages, we find out what a clusterfuck this investigation actually was. Remember the video that I've been referencing? The one on our YouTube channel where the camera person is walking along the wheelbarrow path. Well, first of all, I owe you all an apology. I naively thought that that video was shot in the couple days after the murders. And I made that assumption because the placards A through E are staked off and identified in the video. Obviously, the sheriff's department didn't just leave their evidence markers out there forever, so it had to be recent, right? Wrong. During Moore's cross-examination of LeClaire, he mentions a return trip to the crime scene with the prosecutor and DA investigators to recreate the scene in 2016. So, 10 years after the murders, the prosecution had LeClaire, who didn't have any GPS locations and hadn't taken any measurements, had him go out to the desert to recreate the path of the wheelbarrow. So I started digging through reports, and I found one written by Investigator Harvey. He says that on February 24, 2016, he went up to the crime scene with LeClaire and Ramirez. Ramirez walked to about where the wheelbarrow was and said that's as far as he investigated. Then LeClaire, it sounds like, just took a few more steps, pointed north, and said the card was found about 170 yards that way. As I read the report, I realized it didn't say anything about a video. So I kept digging, and sure enough, I found another report. This one was dated December 28, 2017, almost two years later after the first trip up for the recreation. This is when LeClaire was taken up to the crime scene yet again, this time armed with his hand-drawn map. And that's when the video was made. The report says that Harvey used the map LeClaire drew, his 170-yard estimation, and crime scene photos to determine the approximate GPS location of the business card. He and the rest of the team up there then put stakes in the ground where they believed the placards were located and shot the video that I have posted on YouTube. So, as it turns out, the video is complete nonsense. And again, I want to apologize for misleading you on its origins. It never occurred to me that the video would have been made over 11 years after the fact. And the worst part is that I didn't even notice at the end of the video, the foundation of the house is clearly visible. It's not a pile of rubble, it's the cleaned off foundation. So again, my apologies, I was completely mistaken about that video. With that being said there is still some value in it. Number one, it definitely gives you an idea of the terrain out there. But more importantly, it shows you what footprints look like in that terrain when they're fresh and made when it's dry. There are two things that I noticed when reviewing the video today. First and foremost, the tracks in the sand are consistent from beginning to end. And that's important. On the night of the murders, it had been bone dry up in Pinion Pines for 15 days, and it's obviously dry when this video was shot. 
And yet on the morning of September 18, 2006, the wheelbarrow track was broken up. There were gaps all along the way. And there were a total of five places where tennis shoe prints were documented on the entire trail. The state's theory is that Robert and Christian made those tracks moments before they were discovered and less than 12 hours before they were photographed. So someone please reconcile for me why when Detective Harvey went out to that dry desert and recreated the path, he left footprints literally every step of the way. And yet on the night of the murders, even the wheelbarrow track is broken. And again, we only have five locations with footprints. Secondly, I challenge you to go watch the video and pause it when there's a clear and close look at some of the prints that the investigators left behind in 2017. There's literally not a frame in that video without footprints, but I found a great spot at the 54 second mark. But choose whatever point you want. Do that and take a screenshot. Now I'm going to put a comparison up on our website, but I do want you to check it out for yourself. Take a look at what the fresh tracks on the dry ground look like. Now, compare that picture, that screenshot you took, to any of the photos of the prints that LeClaire testified about. People's 140 is a great example. That's the one out at Placard E, where you see the van's footprint and then the partial globe footprint. It's a nice, clear, straight-down shot of the prints. Put the two pictures side by side and see what you notice. What I noticed is that it's actually laughable that anyone would ever claim that the footprint pictured in People's 140 was made on dry ground. It's actually ridiculous. The footprints in the 2017 video all look pretty much the same. The ground looks soft, sandy. There's a slope on the edges where the sand has started to fill the void in after the foot was lifted. The photo I have on the website from the 54-second mark was taken right next to what they believe to be the Placard E location. And again, look at People's 140. That photo was taken at the actual Placard E. The differences are astounding. The ground doesn't look soft. It doesn't slope in like you see in the video. In that picture, you can actually see cracks in the ground made by the footprints. Like if you stepped on clay that was almost cured but not quite. In the photo, between the blue ruler and the yellow placard, we see a crack. And at the top right of the picture, you see the hard edge of the print. That hard edge is where the sand would have sloped in like it did in the video if the ground was dry. But because the ground was wet, it looks like it was cut with a knife. And just below that edge, you see another crack in the ground. Again, because the ground was wet. Just like in the video print, the shoe depressed into the soft top layer of sand and soil, creating a void. But when the ground was dry, the sand fell in from the edges. And here, when it was wet, the grains of sand stuck together, almost making a mold. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As we move along through LeClaire's testimony, we finally get a clear idea of when he realized that the GPS data had never been reported. Earlier in the transcript, he said that he figured it out after he had left the homicide unit, which was three years after the murders. But in this portion of Cross, we find out exactly how long after he left the homicide unit he figured it out. It was when he was asked to return to the scene in 2016. Ten years after the fact, he went looking for info to help recreate the path, and that is when he discovered that he had no GPS locations. It's like I said before, the wheelbarrow track was never a big priority for LeClaire. As Cross goes on, Moore spent some time asking about the time documented when LeClaire interviewed Javier. Remember in his report, it says that it was at 8.30 in the morning, but we later learned that it was at 12.30. It's really a lot to do about nothing because we know that it couldn't have been at 8.30 in the morning because Javier was using his phone down in the valley till I think, around 11. And LeClaire's explanation is hard to refute. He says that he remembers that he interviewed Javier after he documented the tire track and found the business card, and he collected the card at 10.50 a.m. And also, Jeff Bompensero was interviewing Bonash at the same time that LeClaire was interviewing Garcia, and Bump's report says that it was at 12.30. The only thing that was really relevant here is the fact that LeClaire's recall when writing his reports is less than stellar. He says that he didn't take any notes, and later in the testimony he says that he was working several cases at the same time, and he didn't write his reports until months after the fact. So if he really didn't take any notes, which I personally don't believe, then it's a pretty terrible system of accurately documenting his cases. Moore goes on to ask a lot of questions about what LeClaire didn't do, like request cell sector data, document why he pulled the DNA items from the Department of Justice and sent them to a private lab instead, etc. Then on page 18 of the transcript, Moore circles back around to the wheelbarrow. LeClaire says in the exchange that he didn't know if the track was significant or related to the murders while he was investigating, and even now he says that it's possible that it's not important. More than has LeClaire verified that there's a newly planted tree in the center of People's 121. He acknowledges that it's staked and a berm of dirt was created around it to hold water, as you do when you plant a new tree. And also here we find out that LeClaire made no attempt to try to figure out if that tree could have came from the hole out at the end of the rainbow. And then things take a turn. It goes nowhere during his testimony but I think it'll be pretty impactful to you if you're truly being objective. LeClaire plays the I don't know game, but you look at the picture and be your own judge. Moore puts up Defense Exhibit GG, and I have a redacted version of it up on our website for you to look at. He starts out by pointing out all the debris that was left in the wheelbarrow, 
not only when that photo was taken, but he puts up another photo from when they returned to the scene a couple days later, and the debris is all still in there. And I'll get to the debris in just a minute. But what really drew my attention here was more asking about some dirt stuck to the front of the inside of the wheelbarrow. And when I looked at the photo, sure as shit, there's a large clump of dirt stuck to the upper edge. I'll try to explain this for those of you that aren't looking at the photo. So if you're pushing the wheelbarrow, so you're standing between the handles at the back of it, and you looked into the wheelbarrow in front of you, there's a big chunk of stuck-on dirt, like you would get if it was muddy while you were working, up on the front edge where you would dump stuff out, right next to where Becky's head was positioned. And that tells me a couple things. One, the wheelbarrow was used to move wet dirt, like if you dug up a tree when the ground was wet. There's no way that dry desert soil would clump and stick like that unless it was soaked. And number two, there's no way that Becky was moved in that wheelbarrow. I don't think there's any. Her head was positioned right next to the clump of dirt that sticks out, I'd estimate, about a full inch from the metal. I just don't see any chance that that clump doesn't break up and fall apart if the wheelbarrow was pushed through that bumpy terrain with a body in it. It would disintegrate. In fact, you can see in this picture that just the act of carefully removing her body caused the clump to break up. There's a bunch of dirt kind of sprinkled down from the clump over the top of the burned body debris in the wheelbarrow in this picture. So in order to believe that Becky's body was brought in from the desert in that wheelbarrow, you have to believe that somehow the dried up dirt clump held up through that whole trip, but then crumbled into dust from carefully removing her body. And if I wasn't clear about this, I say that the dirt came down when they removed her body because the sprinkled down dirt is over the top of the burned debris, meaning it got there after the fire, not before. We also learned during Moore's cross-examination that no one ever sifted through the debris left in the wheelbarrow. It's unbelievable that this wasn't done. There's a lot of burned material left behind, and we can even see in the pictures, after Becky's body was removed, that there are ribs left behind in the debris. It's absolutely insane. The ME was unable to determine cause of death, and we've discussed in the past that there was no evidence of like cut marks or bullet wounds through any of her ribs. Well, now we see that at least two, and I think I see three of her ribs, were left behind in the wheelbarrow. And not only that, but neither LeClaire or Ramirez ever bothered to sift through the remains to look for any evidence like a bullet or a weapon. That's the theme of this entire case. The initial investigators did a terrible job of investigating. They left behind evidence, they missed stuff, and they didn't follow up on anything. Moore ends his cross by having LeClaire confirm that while the wheelbarrow wasn't found within 25 feet of the end of the track coming from the wilderness area, the newly planted tree was. It was within six or seven feet of the end of that track. Then after that, a key comes back up for redirect and tries to do some damage control. First, he quite literally leads LeClaire into agreeing that the ground was wet around the wheelbarrow. But again, if you look at Exhibit 121, like I said on Friday, you'll see that what made the ground appear to be washed out or wet was not from the fire hoses. It was the washout from the storm that you can clearly see from the north. There's trenches of where you can see water came through. 
Then a key attempts to muddy the waters, no pun intended, by suggesting that an empty wheelbarrow wouldn't leave as clear of tracks as one with a body in it. He never really explains his point, but he asks that question. There's some objections. It gets kind of confusing. Then he goes back to the area around the wheelbarrow. He asks if LeClaire had to walk around it while he was processing it, and LeClaire says yes, even though he's testified like six times at this point that he, in fact, never processed the wheelbarrow and had nothing to do with the processing of the wheelbarrow. Aki then suggests that LeClaire doesn't know if someone fleeing a scene would obey the speed limit. He's trying to undo what Dolan had done earlier in regards to the drive time, and then he ends with asking if there was something at the crime scene that tied Christian Smith to it, and LeClaire says yes, the business card did. Dolan steps up for recross and points out that Christian wasn't connected to what he calls the major crime scene, meaning the house and the area around it. He then asks if Christian is linked to the wheelbarrow, the gas can, Becky's body, etc., and of course the answer to all those questions is no. Then Dolan goes back to the drive time. He asks LeClaire if there were a lot of accidents on the switchbacks of 74 due to people taking them too fast, and LeClaire confirms that yeah, there have been. Then he asks if a person could drive 60 or 70 miles an hour through those switchbacks, and LeClaire says that he wouldn't. So the next Dolan goes back to the AMPM chapstick trip alibi, probably saying that three times fast. He has LeClaire confirm again that he knew that's where Robert said that he and Christian were when he interviewed him on the 18th, the day after the murders. And he heard the same story again from Christian on the 28th. And yet he still waited until the 30th before sending his partner, Scott Michaels, to the gas station to look for the surveillance video. And of course, as you know, because I've said it before, the video was overwritten after seven days and was no longer available. Had LeClaire went to the gas station the day that Robert told him about it, or even the next day or the day after that, or even four days after that, they would have had the surveillance video and we'd have our answer. But of course, he didn't. There's nothing we can do about that now. So then as we move on, Dolan just points out that Christian and his father consented to have his cell phone records pulled and again reminds the jury that LeClaire didn't request the sector data. Moore steps up one more time for recross, and he draws attention to something that is immeasurably infuriating. He asks if LeClaire ever checked for any surveillance footage, not just from the gas station, from the houses in the neighborhood, traffic cams, etc., and the answer is no, and that is a damn shame. I obviously don't know if this was the case in 2006, but I can tell you that now there are a lot of houses with security cameras up there. I've personally seen them. A lot of the people that live in Pinion Pines are paranoid. Most of the houses have fences out by the road with gates on the driveways and cameras pointed at the gates. Like I said, I don't know if those cameras were there back in 2006 but I bet that some of them were, and LeClaire never even bothered to check. LeClaire's testimony ends with a key's redirect where he's just flat out being an asshole. He asks one question. He asks if LeClaire contacted NASA to get satellite video surveillance of the crime scene. He's making a joke as if it's a ridiculous thing to expect the lead investigator to go look around for video surveillance footage. As though checking for a camera at the neighbor's house is synonymous to asking NASA for satellite video. 
In McClure's testimony, he mentions a couple names of deputies who were on the scene that had followed the wheelbarrow track before he got there. He mentions a Deputy Keener and Deputy Osterloh. Keener didn't testify, but Osterloh did. And his testimony, I think, will help answer some of the how did the jury not get this questions. His testimony is pretty short, and I have it posted, but I'll give you the bullet points. And in my opinion, he's either lying or his memory is terrible. I'm going to start with his testimony and then cover some of the original reports, including his. Remember throughout this season, I've said that the business card was found between 200 and 800 yards back? Well, that's because of Osterloh's report and testimony. He was the second deputy on the scene that night. He was dispatched at 10.19 p.m., five minutes after the firefighters found Becky's body, and he arrived at 10.57. He was in Aguanga when the call came in, so he had a long drive to get to the scene. He says that he could see the fire from a long ways away on 74. When he got there, Deputy Keener was already on the scene. Osterloh says that when he got there, firefighters directed him to the wheelbarrow track. He and Keener followed it, and he estimates that he followed it for around a half mile back into the desert. That's where the 800 yards comes from. Now, I'm not suggesting that the track actually was a half mile long, but it's worth pointing out that it felt that long to Osterloh. It wasn't some short jaunt. He actually mentions in his testimony that he's former military. If you know anybody who's in the military, they know distances. They hike a lot. They walk a lot. And again, not saying it was a half mile, but he took that walk and thought it was a half mile, which means it was a long ways back there. And this is where I believe Osterloh is full of shit. He says that he followed the tracks and noticed two different brands of shoe prints along the way. He then says that when he got to the end, the tracks went in all different directions and the sand was all kicked up. He uses the term area of disturbance. I say he's full of shit for a number of reasons. First and foremost, we have Leclerc's testimony and photos. He could not be more clear that there was no area of disturbance at the end of the wheelbarrow track. It just stops. Now, there are a couple of prints there, and they do point in different directions. Those are the prints that I had you look at a few minutes ago to compare to the prints from the video. But there was certainly no sign of a struggle or disturbance. Leclerc testified to that. His original report doesn't indicate an area of disturbance. Ramirez's report that we covered a long time ago doesn't mention an area of disturbance. Leclerc clearly explained that the only area of disturbance he found was 20 yards away from the origination point of the wheelbarrow track, and there was a large bush between the track and that area. And it wasn't the site of a struggle, but just a place where something had been dug out of the ground. And he says there were zero footprints around it anywhere. Osterloh's story here, um, it's just it's a complete fabrication. It's completely inconsistent with Leclerc's account and Ramirez's report, and he himself doesn't even mention an area of disturbance in his own report, which I'll get to in a minute. What we learn in the rest of his testimony is that he can't explain how the wheelbarrow got to the point of origin without leaving a track. We learn that Osterloh did look around for more tracks, didn't find any. We learn that had he actually found the hole, or what he says is the area of disturbance, He somehow missed the business card that was sitting there five feet away. And we learned that nothing was done. And actually, I skipped over this part in Leclerc's testimony, but it's brought up again here. No one used Luminol or they mentioned Bloodhounds, nothing. 
Nobody did any of that anywhere along the track, around the wheelbarrow, or between the house and the wheelbarrow to find out if there was blood or some kind of disturbance or to figure out where Becky was killed. It never happened. Osterloh claims that you couldn't see any tracks around the barrow itself because the ground was wet, but says that as soon as you got to the dry ground that you could see them. He explains that the ground was only wet in a 6 to 10 foot diameter around the wheelbarrow, so 3 to 5 feet in any direction from it. But when shown People's 121, where you can see the wheelbarrow and Placard A 25 feet away from it, Osterloh says that the wheelbarrow track started before that even though you can see the fucking ground in the photo with no track. And then here's the real kicker. So Osterloh says that placard A was not the start of the wheelbarrow track. He says it started before that, in direct conflict with what everyone else's testimony and reports say, including his own. But just wait until you hear who put the damn placard there to begin with to mark the beginning of the trail. It wasn't actually LeClaire. It was the deputy who originally walked the trail with Osterloh. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Let's go through Jerry Osterloh's report written the day after on the 19th of September. I'll read the relevant portion directly. The entire report's available on our website. Quote, Once additional units arrived, Deputy Keener and I followed the wheelbarrow tire track. The track continued north for about a half mile. All along the trail, we were able to identify two separate and distinct sets of footprints along the tire track. The footprints were always pointing downhill toward the burning house. At the end of the tire tracks, we were unable to locate anything. The footprints were in numerous different directions and did not appear to be leading to anything. End quote. So, at the end of the track, he was, quote, unable to locate anything. Did you hear anything about an area of disturbance where a struggle or a disturbance took place? Me neither. I wanted to do my due diligence... So I didn't stop at Ramirez, Osterlo, and LeClaire's reports, or at LeClaire's testimony. I went ahead and pulled up Deputy Keener's report, since Osterlo said he was right there with him at the end of the rainbow. From his report, quote, With the assistance of Deputy Osterlo, who had arrived to assist, I followed the wheelbarrow's tire trail. We followed the trail for approximately 300 yards northeast into the nearby hills until it ended. While following the trail, Deputy Osterlo and I located two distinct sets of shoe impressions which ran alongside the wheelbarrow's tire trail. Did you hear the part about the area of disturbance they found? Nope, me neither. Keener's report goes on to say, quote, At the request of Investigator Ramirez, Deputy Sexton and I followed the wheelbarrow's trail and shoe impressions again, 
Using evidence markers, Deputy Sexton and I marked the trail for investigators. End quote. So, the first deputy to find and walk the trail, with Osterloh, is the one who placed Placard A at the beginning of the trail. And for our last report, Deputy Sexton. Quote, At about 7 a.m., I assisted Deputy Keener in marking a possible trail that a wheelbarrow may have traveled on. I placed flags along the trail and placed flags next to possible footprints. End quote. Did you get that? Ramirez told Keener and Sexton to mark the trail and footprints. So, do you think he said, just mark some of the footprints? Yeah, I don't either. He told them to mark the footprints, and Sexton says that he marked all the, quote, possible footprints. It's been suggested that there were not just five places where the Vans and DVS shoes made prints, that LeClaire just chose to photograph only those five. But if you believe that, then you have to believe that these deputies decided to only mark a couple of possible footprints and ignore the rest. What we've done over these past two weeks is zoom in on the wheelbarrow track. This is not a game of horseshoes, and close enough just isn't good enough. I haven't been throwing around rhetoric or talking points. I've shared with you everything we have, everything the police had in their file in regards to this track. I've been objective and looked at the actual evidence to draw my conclusions. There is no track connecting anywhere close to the wheelbarrow. The ground between the barrow and the track is clearly soft enough to capture and hold prints and tire marks, and yet none are there. The tire tracks all along the way are broken. And yet, when we see what fresh tracks look like on dry ground, we realize that they shouldn't be. I've shown you side-by-side images of what footprints should look like on that ground when they're fresh and made in dry conditions. And I've compared that to the tracks on the 2006 trail. And there is no mistaking the fact that those original tracks were made when the ground was wet. Thanks to the help of listener Uli, I presented to you that there was a big rainstorm in Pinion Pines 15 days before the murders. And it was dry from then until the day Becky, John, and Vicky were killed. I challenge you to not just trust my judgment or even your own. We all have our biases, whether we want to admit it or not. Show Exhibit 140 to three people who know nothing about this case. Don't say anything, just show them the picture of those footprints and ask them what they think the condition of the ground was when they were made. I did it. I always take the opportunity to check my bias when I have them. I showed it to Janet, who of course does know about the case, but didn't know why I was asking her the question. So I showed it to her last week with no explanation. Then I had a friend stop by the office today, and I asked him. A couple days ago, my ex-wife stopped by to pick up some paperwork, and I showed her. She happens to be a science teacher. And then I showed it to my 17-year-old son. None of them know anything or what the reason was that I was asking them the question. I asked all of them, how would you describe the condition of the ground when those tracks were made? And all of them, within three seconds, said the same thing. It had to have been wet. 
The fact that those tracks were made when the ground was wet should have been the first big coincidence that actually helped Robert and Christian. After all, this is the desert. What are the odds that the one thing that makes a weak connection between one of them and the crime scene was a tire track and it happened to have provably been made the day after a rare rainstorm came through the area? But unfortunately, no one ever looked closely enough or paid enough attention to realize the track was a red herring. That's not even the end of the list. I've shown you that the track stopped 60 feet short of the area that we now know wasn't the location of a struggle, but the spot where a tree was dug out of the ground. I've shown you the freshly planted tree just feet away from the end of the wheelbarrow track. I've shown you a large hole that was dug just feet away from the wheelbarrow itself, in the area where it looks like the dirt was scattered around. And I've showed you the clumped on dirt in the front of the wheelbarrow, so dried out that it began to crumble just from the removal of Becky's body. Dirt that could have only clumped and clung to the metal like that if it was put there when it was wet. We've taken the time to fully and properly investigate this track, and I've come to the only possible logical and reasonable explanation for it, supported by the evidence. It was made when a tree was transplanted from the wilderness area to John and Vicky's backyard, and it was done on the day after a big rain, which happened to be the first day of Vicky's vacation from work. To suggest a counter-narrative that two teenagers went on a hike with Becky, killed her for reasons unknown hundreds of yards into the desert in the pitch-black darkness without leaving a trace, no blood, no sign of a struggle, No drag marks. Nothing. Then they hiked back to the house, retrieved guns that must have been in the car for some reason, killed John and Vicky, then get a wheelbarrow and push it back out into the desert to find the body, again in the pitch black, load it up, bring it all the way back to the area by the house, only to light it on fire for the world to see. To suggest that as a reasonable counter-narrative, Knowing that that scenario not only defies the evidence, it requires one trip out to the point of the murder by at least two people, then a trip back to the house by at least one person, then a third trip by two people and a wheelbarrow, and then a fourth trip back with those two people in the wheelbarrow, and yet we have a grand total of five documented footprints. Five. And only one wheelbarrow track. To hang one's hat on that narrative is the definition of bias. There is no intellectual honesty in that position. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be insulting, but these are the facts. It's a preposterous theory, and yet a necessary one if you're working from the preconceived notion that Robert and Christian must be the killers. Janet put it best in this week's follow-up. The theory was reverse-engineered from a conclusion. But now, I'm sure you're asking, what about the business card, though? To be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know how that card got there. But I know a couple things about it. I know that there is hard scientific evidence suggesting that the DNA in that card was degraded. And I know the ninhydrin appears to show that it was badly sun-stained, like it had been out there for a long time. 
And most importantly, I know that it is not in any way connected to the crime scene. I do not know how it got there, but a pot of gold, it is not. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Go to patreon.com slash truth and justice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.